Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Hello everyone, you are listening to Green Left. My name is Jacob Antwafa and I am your host for this program. Our episode today is going to draw on the theme of the COVID-19 crisis and capitalism, a socialist analysis. And we are going to be exploring the lessons that socialists can draw from the COVID-19 crisis, what are the limitations of what capitalist governments have done in response to the crisis, what are the solutions and practical measures that socialists should be advocating for, and what opportunities does this crisis present for the left as a whole. Um, to start this kind of important discussion, we're going to be speaking to Peter Boyle, um, who is a member of Social Alliance and a regular contributor to Green Left um, about all these important themes. Peter, what can you kind of say, I guess, about how some of the capitalist countries have been responding to the COVID-19 crisis? Yes, I think, Jacob, this is this is probably the most um, um, amazing thing about how this uh, crisis is playing out and 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 it, it's well first of all it it what gets our attention when we try and look at this question look at the figures is uh, the first things we see the united states you know the world's richest capitalist country at the top of the list uh, whether you count it in terms of the number of cases of 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 covid-19 that have been confirmed or you count it in terms of the of the total death toll. It's right up there at the top of the list. So at the very least, that tells us this is a massive indictment of capitalism. How come? How come they're in this situation? How come we are seeing these horrible, you know, gruesome sights of mass burial graves of of bodies piled up out in the open or being loaded onto to 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 cooler trucks because their entire system, their hospital system, their, their, even their mortuaries are overwhelmed. And, and, and when you break it down, you can say there's a backstory to this, that it is how did it get to this stage where the U.S. is at the top of the list. But there's also another unfolding story, and that is how the United States and every other single capitalist government, including the Australian government, how they are looking uh, to what next moves they're looking at, you know, how they're, they're looking to, 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 to relate to this pandemic as it further unfolds. So I think the, the, the obvious thing when you look at the history of particularly at how the, the, uh, the U.S. government and the British government uh, dealt with it, you could say at the early stage, while many other countries in East Asia uh, whether we're talking about China, we're talking about South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, uh, countries which had uh, a terrible previous experiences with other, with, with other similar viruses, virus pandemics, while they were moving rapidly into taking action in, on, on the question, in the United States and in the UK and Britain, there was, there was almost a dismissal about the seriousness of this pandemic. So you could say for a while it looked like those governments were 
were prepared to do what now probably only a few extreme right-wing groups are actually openly advocating. They were prepared to countenance the idea of just letting the the, the virus, the coronavirus spread, and they 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 they, they uh, speculated that maybe this would be good. It would give them eventually herd immunity because once you know a, a majority of the population got infected. Um, those that survive would have some immunity, hopefully, and, and, and therefore the country would come out very quickly, uh, without, you know, uh, any great costs, uh, from, from this pandemic. But, you know, as the figures started to build up, I think, uh, these governments were at different, different paces forced to reconsider what to do. And I think the first, uh, of, of these capitalists, big capitalist countries, rich capitalist countries that was forced to reconsider was the Boris Johnson government in, in Britain because, you know, it was confronted with statistics that showed even if you, you know, tried your best to uh, insulate or separate out the most vulnerable people in the community, say old people, for instance, people over the age of 70 or people with um, um other major chronic diseases, even if you were able to do that, uh, the government was presented with estimates that showed the entire hospital system would be overwhelmed. And I think that uh, started to frame a different way of looking at things from the point of view of the capitalists. The question they were then contemplating was whether they could pursue a policy of control release of the virus, you know, and that you would say that's mitigation. So you take some measures to try and slow down uh, the, the the release of, of the virus um, and uh, hopefully at a rate that doesn't overwhelm your health system. Uh, but even that strategy was then modelled, particularly by a group of epidemiologists at the Imperial College in, in, in Britain, and they said, you know, you're still going to be overwhelmed. And the numbers were piling up already in Britain and, and the government had to then very quickly start to bring in measures to at least, you know, clamp down on this, um, you know, getting more and more people to stay at home, closing, cl- uh, closing down large sections of, 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 of industry in the country. In the United States, uh, the, the period of denial seemed to have gone on for a much, much longer time. And because of the of the character of Donald Trump, you know, there was the, the the statements that were coming out from Washington were absolutely random, you know, and all over the shop. And I think they've just basically lost control of the situation to an even greater deal than they did in the UK or in the other European countries like Italy, Spain, France, which you know you would say, you know without any conscious planning, things got out of hand very quick because they were just not on top of, 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 of the virus. Um, so now you've got a situation that I think all the major capitalist countries to some degree or another are trying, uh, you know, imposing some degree of, 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 of uh, shutdown or lockdown uh, inconsistently, but they are also trying to scale up the capacity of the hospital systems to, to, to deal with the question. Um, so that brings us to where we are up at, at the current stage. And, and the United States is still, you know, a horror story in this regard. But in countries like Australia, a, a new debate is coming up. And I think you could sum it up as a debate about 
whether we can now once again contemplate the idea of letting a control spread uh, of the coronavirus through the community um, at a rate that will not overwhelm the health system. And so we are hearing more and more voices, particularly in the in in the uh, financial press. Financial Review seems to have decided to take a lead on this, uh, which are explicitly calling uh, for a new stage, a new stage in which we would need to consciously allow the virus to, to spread. And, uh, of course, there's a lot of sort of self-congratulation. Oh, Australia, great job. Uh, with, uh, with the partial lockdown that we've had over the last three weeks to one degree or another around the country. We've done such a great job in reducing the number of new infections, etc., cetera, uh, that um, this sets us up to have another go at the process of allowing, you know, a controlled infection to take place. Of course, uh, you know, I, I mean, one question is whether or not governments are actually going to take up this advice from the financial press uh, and implement it, presuming the financial press is expressing at least a significant point of opinion uh, in the ruling class, in, 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 the, in the billionaire class, in the corporate, in the corporate rich class, um, whether the government's going to take it up. The peculiar thing is that if you listen to every single statement by the, the Morrison government, um, you know, he, he has been very careful, at least in recent times, to to avoid uh, acknowledging that this is the plan. The closest thing I think he has said in recent times is to acknowledge that currently Australian government policies could be described as being within the suppression phase. Um, but, you know, in the future, a new phase will have to be contemplated. That's implied. But the chief medical officer who's advising uh, uh, Morrison and his government, uh, Brenda Murphy, is actually being more, um, more, more, more direct in, in, in implying that the framework in which we are seeing official government policy in Australia unfold is one of uh, preparing for a new attempt at control, um, um, you know, spreading of the virus. And, and the way you can tell this is by listening to, to how he talks about what would be, what would be the, 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 the measurement that would influence a decision to start relaxing the controls on movement, on the stay at home principles, et cetera, social distancing. And, and Brendan Murphy is consistently saying that what they would be measuring to decide when to move to the next stage is uh, the capacity of our hospitals, particularly its uh, intensive care capacity. So they have been trying to scale up the capacity of hospitals over the last couple of weeks, increasing the number of ICU units, getting more um, uh, ventilators in, etc. So if, if you make a decision to, to start sort of moving into a new phase, uh, reducing lockdowns, etc., etc., on the basis of the, the capacity of the hospital to deal with emergencies, that makes it pretty clear that you are contemplating actually taking on, you know, uh, 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 having a greater spread of the virus and more cases to deal with. 
I, I would say that's a fair conclusion. If you were going to continue to try and eradicate or suppress uh, the, the spread of the virus, which, of course, I think many of the uh, um, uh, medical experts are saying Australia is actually one of the countries uh, which is in a very good position to do that. One, because we do have a stronger public health hospitals, public hospital system. Um, we have the capacity to do you know, a pretty good job at tracing uh, the contacts of, of, of any known cases. And we certainly have the money to do a lot more testing so that we can detect cases um, you know, uh, more effectively in, in the community. Australia is an, an island continent. Um, you know, it's basically, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's external relations have been, you know, in terms of travel, ships, boats, and planes, etc., have all been sort of like, well, closed. And, they, you know, they don't have to be kept absolutely closed, but they're certainly now much more controlled uh, and monitored than they were previously. So, it is in a good position. And now there's a comparison between Australia and, and New Zealand. New Zealand, where the government has explicitly said, look, we want to eradicate this virus, and that's the policy we are following. We do not. Jacinta Ardern, the Prime Minister, said we have never and will not contemplate uh, this um, gamble for herd immunity. So I think that's the, that, that sums up the state of, of play currently. Uh, I, I think as, as socialists, well, even if you're not a socialist, if you just basically had had a love for humanity, if you're a humanist, uh, you would be advocating that the government um, um, try its best to to eradicate uh, this this virus and, and and to keep the pressures on until such time as you know, um, say, vaccine may be developed. Um, this doesn't mean that we're, we're, we're making an argument for a permanent lockdown until that point in time, because there is plenty of medical experience and advice uh, that, that, um, that models how you, you, you can have a process of, of, of relaxing and tightening as necessary social distancing and the degree of lockdown if it's associated with a very um, well-resourced and effective system of testing uh, and, and, and tracing and contacts and, and proper quarantining. So I think that's where we're at right now. And I think, I, I think the humanitarian choice, the poor people's choice is very clear. On the other hand, of course, we have a capitalist class, which, you know, doesn't look at things in the same way, which, which does look at, human lives as being expendable because that's the you know as 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 some as as some uh what do you call it uh of the uh correspondents in the financial review say but that's normally that's what we do uh, yeah it's true under uh, under capitalism they have a very callous attitude to human lives um and they measure it up against their ability to keep on exploiting the con to keep on the process of capital accumulation. And they're very upset that um, the current measures are actually interfering with this and they want to get back to business. Now, I'm sure they also worry they don't want to get, get infected and they don't want to die, but, you know, they do have the resources and they've had a bit of time now. So while the rest of us, you know, be barracking on, you know, doing our best to, to, to stop the spread of the, of, of the virus and, you know, 
hoping our, our health system and the health workers, you know, are strengthened and better resourced to, to, to deal with it. From a ruling class point of view, from a capitalist point of view, you might thinking, well, you know, if, if I can look after that side for me and my family, uh, other people can take a bigger risk, you know, especially when it comes to whether they can continue to, to, to make money and accumulate a, a capital. Um, that's the kind of calculation to do. So that's the, the, the conflict of interest that we're dealing with. And I think our policies have to both, you know, as socialists have both to address you know, the immediate steps that have to be taken to, to both deal with the, with, with the pandemic, but also to, 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 to protect the livelihoods, uh, of, of, of people whose jobs have either been, uh, completely destroyed or uh, cut down to, in, in terms of hours, et cetera. Yeah. So I guess, um, Peter, I, I, I guess what kind of flows out of this is, do you think that um, when it comes to capitalist countries and their refusal to sort of implement a sort of strategy of suppression, does you, do you think that says something about this old sort of argument that sort of has been popping up around um, the question of COVID-19 of an example of how capitalists are putting the interests of the economy over public health or or even the public good? Well, I think that's, that's, I mean, in the general sense, that, that's true. That's always true. But, you know, to be fair, what we're talking about here is actually, um, when we're talking about the attitudes of governments to, on one hand, suppression, on the other hand, you know, either control to lesser or greater degree spread of, of, of the virus in the hope of gaining, you know, a herd immunity, um, the division, uh, is not between, you know, uh, there is a division between capitalist governments. And, and I don't just mean between, say, um, New Zealand, which has, you know, perhaps a more social democratic government and, and say the US or UK or Australia, but it's also between capitalist governments in East Asia. You know, Singapore is a capitalist government and so is Taiwan and South Korea and arguably so is China. Um, the, the, the difference seems to be, you know, between these sort of anglophone imperialist countries, rich, rich capitalist countries. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a matter of speculation uh, why that's the case. Um, maybe some people have speculated that, you know, these countries who who are in a kind of a political, economic, uh, military alliance that is USA, uh, Britain, and Australia are you know, have a sort of a, a framework where they think that one, we are the richest countries in the world. You know, we can, we can, you know, uh, have a pandemic like this knock out a section of our population and we can still keep going. M- maybe they, 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 they have a confidence that arises out of the fact that these are among the richest countries, you know, most developed countries in the world. Maybe there's a certain arrogance in that. Maybe there's an, there's the whole question of the growing, uh, inter-capitalist, uh, tensions has also something to do with this. You know, it's been speculated by some people as well that maybe, uh, the governments of the United States and Britain, for instance, thought that, uh, this was an opportunity to gain an edge 
over their competitors, their capitalist competitors. So the idea being that if somehow they could attain this herd immunity uh, before other capitalist countries, uh, you know, they, they might have the economy might be able to operate at a higher level, and therefore they would they would have a competitive advantage. So I mean I don't know. This is you know we we are in in the in in an area of speculation, but these are all possible reasons why these governments have decided to go to go that way. Quite apart from the question that in general, of course, capitalists you know want to figure out the best way of going back to business. Of course, the calculation, uh, you know, even if if you were a capitalist government and you were talking to your your own capitalist class. Your calculation about what point, at what point you might be prepared to, to risk, uh, allowing the, the, the virus to spread faster, to be less controlled, um, could also relate to your calculation of the state of your health system. So therefore rich countries, uh, or countries that have, you know, more money into health, more hospital beds, you know, more more ICU units and, and equipment for it, etc., might feel like they could take the gamble earlier. So a country with actually generally poorer health system, of course, would have to re- wait a lot longer before it could be confident that it wouldn't be immediately overwhelmed. But I think that's the kind of calculations that are going on uh, in in various capitalist governments. Yeah, I guess it's quite clear from this discussion um, that capitalist um, governments all around the world, um, are, you know, are having different approaches on how they can contain uh, the COVID-19 spread and, you know, from mitigation to some countries uh, adopting a strategy of trying to suppress the virus altogether. And I guess that then raises the question of what are the, what are the solutions that socialists should be putting forward uh, in this crisis, like how would, you know, what is a socialist vision of how we could properly deal with the COVID-19 crisis? Well, I think there's two sides to the vision, though they're completely interrelated. I mean, the, the first aspect is that I think we start with our people first approach. And so we, you know, as socialists, we assert that the priority has to be people's lives and livelihoods over capitalist profit, profitability. So all the measures that we put forward, you know, are clearly based on this clear priority. And therefore we, uh, you know, have a whole range of demands that, that we are putting forward uh, from, you know, well, looking after the health, you know, expand the, the, the health service, you know, nationalize the private hospitals if they you know, if, if they're out there wasting resources or worse still refusing to allow resources to be made available to the community. Um, we are for uh, measures to protect uh, the incomes of people who have lost their jobs, um, whether they are um, through a system of, you know, subsidies to keep them in the jobs that they would otherwise lose, or as a direct payment if they've already lost their jobs and they need some sort of uh, form of uh, social support. Um, so those are some of the measures that, that 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 we would be arguing for. We also, I think, support defend um, the the right of workers if they are to go back to work 
whether they are in the so-called essential industries or, um, or, or not, that if they go back to work, they have to be able to work safely. And that's the absolute priority um, because if, it's, if, if you don't fight for this, you know, the capitalists are quite prepared to risk, risk their workers. It's very interesting that there's some studies being done in the United States. Um, two of them, I think, very interesting. One is, of course, you know, the obvious one, and that is as the death toll has increased in the United States, that you can see a massive over-representation over of people of color, for instance. So you can see the structural racism in society reflected in the death toll. You know, you've got much more chance of dying from COVID-19 if you're black or Latina in, 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 in the U.S. On the other hand, they've also done studies about, you know, social distancing, you know, how, how, um, how widely is this practice across the society? And the studies have found that if all the, the poorest sections, the lowest part, uh, the most oppressed and lowly paid sections of the working class um, are in the worst position to maintain safe social distance or physical distancing to avoid uh, transmission of, of coronavirus, um, both at their workplace, but also in their living conditions because they're often living in more cramped and crowded conditions. So, there's a, a there's there's this this double double uh, um, um, effect that 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 is going to mean that 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 uh, poorer people are, are are hit harder. So one way in which this has yet to really play out in the figures on a global level is we have yet to see what's going to happen once the pandemic takes root in more countries in the global south and the third world countries because in the first instance apart from a few countries in asia which were close to china where you know the virus uh, seems to have started um, most of the other countries which are you know the top top with the top numbers of infections and deaths currently are the richer countries so with the usa up the top and this is explained you know, because the, the, the disease was carried around, they had more people traveling because they could afford to than, than people from the poorer countries. And it got transmitted faster back into these more developed countries. But if you study the international statistics, what we are seeing now, because, you know, every day there's, there's a count going on and you see that the order in which the countries, whether you order them in terms of number of detected infections or, or, or deaths, is constantly changing. And if you look further down, so you look at the positions between number eight and number 12, for instance, uh, you will start to see where the process of the spread of the, the, the pandemic in is becoming the new disturbing growth factor. So two countries, for instance, that are making their, their way up the list uh, certainly in the, in, in, on, on the basis of the deaths, uh, are Brazil and Turkey. And they are, you know, juggling, uh, in, in terms of, uh, uh, numbers of deaths for the 12th and 11th position. In terms of the number of detected, detected cases, and, and you have to bear in mind, a poorer country has less resources to do testing. Therefore, 
its number of confirmed cases are probably grossly underestimated. But even on those formal counts, uh, these two countries have jumped up to right behind Iran, which was, as, as, as you know, one of the early, early, um, uh, countries to be hit by, by this disease. And I think in the next couple of days, uh, either Turkey or Brazil is going to overtake Iran in, 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 in the number of cases and the number of deaths that, that, that it has eventually. So people are really frightened about this because if you take the idea of, you know, the, the fact that, um, poorer people, particularly when you looked at a global scale, the great mass of people live in extremely cramped conditions and are forced to work with no protection whatsoever at any level. And, and not just in terms of social distancing, but, in, you know, in the whole conditions of work, atrocious, etc. You know, what happens once the pandemic starts to hit the mega slums in, 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 in the huge cities in the third world? What happens when it takes root in, say, Bangladesh, which is home to one of the biggest, one of the, the biggest, um, um, refugee camps in Cox, Cox Bazaar? What happens if it hits the, the, the shanty towns in South Africa? So these are the questions, you know, that, that, that demand our attention as socialists because there is an international solidarity dynamic to our, how we relate to this pandemic. It's not just about looking after the workers in Australia, but looking after, you know, the, the working people, the, the poor farmers all around the world who are going to be hit by this pandemic. So it's critical that we have demands that address this solidarity. And the rich countries have a duty to share technology, to share access to health and equipment, etc. Of course, what we actually seeing some of the richest capitalist countries do is exactly the opposite. You know, they've tried to corner uh, equipment and medications uh, on, on the world market and deprive the poorer countries of access to them. Um, the United States has been accused of piracy, literally accused of piracy to get such equipment. Um, in addition to that, there's been this deliberate, um, you know, encouragement of racism, uh, you know, escape, racist scapegoating to deal with it. So Donald Trump's pretty, been pretty brazen about this, particularly branding this um, the Chinese virus, as he puts it, and you know, like in a, and of course, he says something like that, and you know, it's nudge, nudge, wink, wink. It goes through the entire um, apparatus of hate and violence that is the far right, and it expresses itself, you know, in violence on street corners all around the world, anti-Asian violence, growing numbers whether it's in the United States or Britain or, or Australia, growing instances of, of racist abuse, racist violence even that we are beginning to see. So, you know, it's almost like automatic that this is what happens in a crisis. Uh, the capitalist governments look to scapegoating. Racism is a, you know, an old, dirty, old ideology that is really good for the purpose of divide and rule, and they are deploying it. So the response of socialists has to be, you know, not just anti-racist, stand up to racism, 
but putting forward concrete uh, steps and advocating concrete steps f- to show international solidarity, solidarity for the most suppressed. In this category, come uh, in, you, you would include uh, demands to free, you know, the, the the refugees who are locked up in detention camps, um, offshore detention camps, and on, in Australia and all around the world. Um, it, it includes calls to 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 let uh, prisoners, uh, you know, get out of dangerous situations in their jails, particularly in in Australia, where, where you have a disproportionate number of First Nations people in a prison population, many of whom have very serious um, chronic illnesses. They are in the highest risk category. They should not be kept. In, 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 in dangerous conditions in prisons need to be there needs to be more early release there needs to be you know if necessary home detention orders could be possible replacements or alternative community uh, service orders could be made um so yeah peter um yeah i think you raised kind of like a lot of good points about um i think the issues of racism whites and um important um you know, for, um, for socialists to not just be, um, anti-racist, but internationalists and stand up for global solidarity. Um, I guess the next kind of question I want to kind of ask is what opportunities do you think, um, that this crisis poses, uh, for socialists and, you know, the case for a socialist transformation of society? Yes. I think this is, this is a very important question, um, for, for socialists to, to think deeply about. And, and, and try to understand the, the, the dynamics at play. Um, first of all, it's a recognition that what we are dealing with now is not simply a medical crisis. It's a, it's a social and political crisis. It, and it's a very big one because there is, there's, um, there's no evidence, uh, credible evidence to suggest that, uh, this is a crisis that any country, even the rich countries are going to be able to get out of in a sh- very short time. To some degree or another, uh, the crisis is going to continue for months and months, if not more than a year, or in, maybe even into two years to some degree or another. And in this crisis, uh, the first thing that we are, are, are seeing is, is the, the, uh, the different interests, the, the conflicting interests of different classes, and therefore the different uh, proposals they put forward of what should be done. So we've talked about that, that earlier. In there uh, is a tremendous opportunity for socialists to actually win over lots and lots of people to our position because we are able uh, to uh, to point out, you know, uh, the basic division of society into classes, and we are able to, and because they're doing a lot of self-exposure, the, uh, the 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 capitalist class, in particular, the richest part of it, the millionaire class. Uh, we are able to expose their anti-social interests, you know, their, their, their totally reactionary interests that are, is, 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 um, totally inhumane and actually against uh, the interests of us even dealing with a crisis like this. Then we have another opportunity which is connected to the crisis. And, and that is because this is a, an all-round social, economic, political crisis, the capitalists, even the richest capitalist governments, are struggling 
to even deal with the medical challenge uh, without starting to push against some of the limitations of, you know, the structure of the capitalist economy. And this is particularly the case because we have come through four decades of neoliberalism, four decades of neoliberalism which have kind of cut back, you know, uh, the public sector, the public services like the health services and other welfare services. But they've also made, uh, you know, the the elevation of... Uh, uh, just in time, you know, lean and mean, all these principles have gone through the entire economy. So they don't have a lot of uh, leeway when things don't go according to plan as, you know, as happens in any crisis. And thirdly, because a new global division of labor has been imposed on the world according to capitalist need, uh, which makes every country now more dependent on imports uh, from other countries to satisfy basic supplies. So we saw this, for instance, in uh, the, the critical problem of trying to find protective equipment. Uh, Australia did not have the means to both buy uh, good protective equipments for its hospital staff, for masks and, and gloves and, 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 and other things, but had also in the last period uh, destroyed its own manufacturing capacity in the interests of profitability, and uh, therefore, you know, was scrambling to actually source these things. And a whole range of things, uh, capitalism cannot operate as normal. Uh, the transport sector, the airline sector, the, um, the only way airline companies will survive a crisis like this is with massive state bailouts. And when you look at what's really been happening, I mean, these were the first people to come to the government demanding money. And they're not asking for small amounts of money. They're asking for, for billions of dollars to bail them out. But, you know, the question is raised. If the public is going to effectively bail out these companies, um, should they then be allowed to continue to operate, you know, uh, to their own you know, narrow interests, or should it be operating according to social interests? So the the whole question of whether or not entire sections of the uh, of industry, including the airlines, for instance, and also including private hospitals, you know, there's a strong argument in society why they should be brought under uh, social control. They should be nationalised and put under social control. So in another sense, here we have what's going on here is that. In dealing with a crisis of this nature, uh, life and economy has to be organized on a different way. And in a, in, in a sense, this, there's potential in this for people to go through an actual learning true experience that there is another way of doing things to that dictated previously uh, by, by, by the capitalists. Uh, more generally, I think our, our thinking is focused on, um, should be focused on how we package or how we present um, our politics in a moment of crisis. And one of the things which I found uh, most interesting, because I think, you know, everybody recognized, I mean, if you certainly, if you come from a tradition that's informed by, by, by the method of Karl Marx, uh, you recognize that change comes through crisis. So that's a, a broader recognition that we, that as socialists, we, we, we all have. But more specific than this, 
how do we engage in this process of change coming through process, uh, through, through conflict? And I found very persuasive arguments uh, that have been put forward that says that from all our past experiences, socialists have to uh, 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 best respond in a moment of crisis and best set themselves up for coming, you know, for, 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 uh, for promoting a development that is positive in the direction of moving to socialism after the crisis is over. The best way they, they position themselves for this is by seriously taking on fighting, you know, the real enemy that's in the crisis or the, 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 the challenge that the crisis is directly presenting to people. So in this case, socialists do have it to, to take a position in putting forward measures that are, are, are the best from a people's first point of view into how to deal with the pandemic. Um, in the same way, using an analogy, during World War World War Two, see World War Two and World War One were two similar, you know, all-sided crises that society went on that that actually threw into question whether or not a society could continue to organize on the way it was organized before. Both those those big crises, World War One, World War Two, posed that. But um, so in during World War Two. And large slabs of the world were under occupation by Nazi Germany or uh, uh, Imperial Japan's military occupation. In all those countries, the tactics of socialists, the most successful tactics of socialists, had to hinge on being the leading force in fighting the occupation. So if you take that same analogy to the current crisis, Socialists have to put themselves as putting forward the best solutions uh, to, to, to the pandemic. It's a political question because in the process of doing this, uh, we will then able to contrast, uh, you know, um, the, the, uh, the, 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 both the interests of the capitalists and the interests of the rest, but also the sort of measures that the capitalists are putting forward, the anti-social measures, and contrasting them with the rational and necessary measures that, that that socialists put forward. We also bring into the equation the question of the broader ecological question. Now, uh, this 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 pandemic, you know, is not just a medical challenge. It's not just a a, 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 a disease, but it's also an expression of the huge and growing contradiction that capitalist society and its and its um, irrational drive for f- greater and greater exploitation, both of of of, of uh, the, the majority of humanity as well as of nature, the total contradiction that it poses for our continued um, survival on planet Earth. And before this crisis came up, that was expressed to most people most clearly in the climate crisis, the climate emergency, which is still there, still happening. And in fact, is interlinked with pandemics like this, because there will be more pandemics, both if the capitalists continue doing what they're doing today, which is they're tearing us, they are, you know, they are agribusiness is, is rapacious in its, in, in its advance and it's, it's unscrupulous and is dealing both with people and with nature. Um, but in addition to that, I think, you know, while that has also brought on the whole climate crisis, the climate emergency, the climate emergency itself 
is forcing lots of people, including, you know, some of the most marginalized people to encroach further on nature as a matter of survival because the, the lands they previously depended on, you know, are becoming destroyed by the climate crisis. So there is a, a, a real connection here. And I think that's something else that socialists and I think today any, any socialist is, is serious about a socialist future. Uh, is also an eco-socialist because they recognize that uh, this whole question of uh, of the transformation of society, uh, you know, is 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 based on on an interlinked struggle between the struggle for uh, for if you like uh, justice and equality and fairness and distribution of 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 the wealth of society, but also it's intertwined with the struggle for uh, ecological sustainability. Because you can't, you know, the, the, you know, we won't be uh, be able to build a fairer society on the basis of a society which has destroyed the nature it actually depends on to survive. That will be. Um, that is a good note to end on. Um, just a reminder um, for listeners: um, you can read more about um, about this topic in um, the latest Green Left. Um, Peter Boyle has an article um, titled "Don't Accept the Billionaires' Calls to Sacrifice Lives for the Economy," um, which go which is um, covers a lot of the themes that we've been covering in this talk. So I'd like to thank all our listeners um, um, for tuning in to our podcast and. Keep the struggle going and um, tune in to our next episode of Green Left. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.